Alrighty, we've got Rescue Cast number 12, and we're going to call it Grimp Day Part 2. How can it be Grimp Day Part 2, you asked? I already did one on Grimp Day. Came back from Europe. It was actually the last podcast I did, what, about four or five months ago at this point. Since that time, we've traveled to China and traveled to Taiwan and taken part in two more rescue competitions. And that's what we're going to chat a little bit about here. So, without any further ado, we're going to bust right into it, talk about the first one, China. We were lucky enough to be invited down to Lifeline in China. Now a bit of a disclaimer, they did sponsor us to come down there, so take my words with that in mind. Now, the event, outstanding. We thought it was very well run, especially for a first year event, and so it should have been. They brought in Jay Shen, who runs Chow in Taiwan, the other competition that I'll speak about, to help run that event. Now Jay did a phenomenal job, an outstanding job setting this up. Now just think about this for a second. We're talking about a country that is technically still communist, flying in some out-of-town teams, you know, putting us up, doing all that sort of stuff, and letting us go do some rope rescue in their back country. It is kind of an eye-opener. It is very, very cool. I couldn't help but walk around there and think that, you know, many moons ago, back when I was in the armed forces, I was trained to fight these people. <laughs> now there I am doing rope rescue with them. Very, very cool feeling. Now, overall, with the China experience, they picked us up at the airport. We had a small bus that was like a little Toyota minivan, large van kind of thing um, that took us around everywhere. The driver stayed with us. We had a translator slash tour guide with us the entire time. That person picked us up from the airport. They put us to bed at night. They woke us up in the morning. They took us to the event. We flew into Beijing. From there, we got on a domestic flight down to Chongqing, got picked up, went down to um, a little town, not even sure of the name of it, somewhere outside of Chongqing where the hotel was, and then from there went up to Mount Jinfu where they are creating a ski resort. Um, Hungarian, no, sorry, the Austrians are in there with them helping create this ski resort and they wanted to put this place on the map a little bit and also take a look at some rescue requirements based on the fact that they're going to be having tourism there and they want to make sure that it's safe. So we get there and uh, I mean I've never been to China before. Very humid, very warm even in September, 32 Celsius for us uh, that run on the Celsius scale, 34 Celsius, feeling like 37, feeling like 42, very humid, very wet, very interesting. So we get there, and one of the things that they did, which was I thought was very cool right from the start, is on day one, three-day event, uh, the Thursday, there's a climb, 100-meter 330-foot climb up beside a waterfall, three teams going at once, and you had to pass a knot on the ascend. You had 15 minutes to hit the knot, and you had 30 minutes to be off the line completely at the top. Then you hiked back down through the jungle a couple kilometers back around. 
What was cool about this part of the event though is the controller had to climb as well. So in a lot of times at Grimp Days and whatnot, the controller, that's your team member, and I guess I'll back up a little bit here, most of the time you have a seven person team. You have a team leader, you have four rigger slash rescuers for a five person rescue team, you have a patient, live patient, and you have a controller, and that controller gets broken out and evaluates other teams. So to have the controller compete on one of the days was very cool. And so the team was broken down. It could either be the controller or the patient. But now we have six of the seven members climbing. Uh, We broke into our three groups, did that 100-meter climb. And I haven't climbed 100 meters in a long time, if ever. Um, Used the foot-knee-chest ascender to do that, more of the ARB technique. But instead of running your... um, rope wrench system on the front we were running a crawl and even with that it definitely took a lot out of you kudos off to one of the asian teams can't remember which one sorry there are two climbers i uh, got the fastest time at just over seven minutes for a hundred meter ascent passing that knot we were around the 20 minute mark the fastest group we had i think in our group was 17 so Not too bad, but one of the things that I was looking at worth mentioning there was having the controller work on that. The other interesting thing is then we moved into the Friday and Saturday of the event. We had five events per day for a total of 10 events. The controller's out marking other teams, but the controller got marked by the safety officer that was on the site. So the team's marks were only out of 80 The other 20 to make 100 points per event was requirement of the controller. So if the controller decided to get lazy, not show up for an event, you know, take a long lunch, the controller decided to play a little bit of, you know, hometown hero there and knock other teams down in order to get their team higher or the controller was not competent and missed something safety-wise, then the team got marked down. When that's very, very interesting because in the past, I haven't seen that. And at the end of the day, I think it really works because it helps set that up so that the team works as a team. The controller is an integral part of that. So the other interesting thing about the China experience was the first time I've been exposed to 30, 60, 90. way they broke it down there You had 30 minutes to reach the patient. You had to physically have hands on the patient performing some medical, you know, doing your quick DABCs, march, whatever you want to use, within 30 minutes. At 60 minutes, the patient had to be packaged and moving. So whatever device we were packaging in, patient had to be in there, and they had to be on rope and moving in the system. At 90 minutes, you were finished, or it was stopped, zero points. And if you'd missed the 30, zero points. If you missed the 60, zero points. If you missed the 90, zero points. My last podcast, and I think podcast two, we've talked a lot about speed versus safety. Where's the balance? This was an interesting balance that they generally wanted you getting a patient done within the golden hour, giving you a little bit more time for rigging, obviously, in this with the 90. But that 30 minutes, you either get to your patient or you get no points. It really drives home that 
rope rescue isn't just some cool discipline we do to make the news. There is a goal here, and that goal is the patient and moving that patient to more definitive medical care. So that was a really, really cool idea with those particular things. Back to the events, I mentioned the climb. There was a horizontal high line with a reeve. There was a couple sloping high lines. One of the sloping high lines right over top of a river. And only in China could you do this. To get the ropes and the patients and everything to the other side of that river, there was no bridge. There's a picture of uh, one of our members almost waist deep in this river moving gear across. That's not something you're going to find generally in North America. There's some safety concerns people are going to have with that. But at the end of the day, very, very cool to see that. Um, yeah, just a, a great venue. Um, very interesting to be in that side of rural China. I've said, you know, these kind of events, they also open up some different things to see and do. And I mean, take you to places that you've just never been before and probably will never be back. One of the scenarios was a tower crane. Now, we do a lot of tower crane rescue, a lot of standards. I'm sitting in British Columbia, Canada. I know my fellow rescuers within Canada, the United States, Western Europe, there's a lot of regulations around tower cranes. Regulations may not be as stringent in China. There was a few things there that we were looking at going, in North America, I would rig to this. Here, maybe not so much. But that's what made it part of it. And We'll talk a little bit further in the podcast here about an anchor failure in Taiwan. And that's very much part of this is figuring out and deciding what you are and are not going to use as anchors and as a team leader, what you will and won't tolerate. So yeah, very cool scenarios. Once again, plethora of them. One of the other things we saw there and noticed there was the consistency and training of one of the European teams. I won't mention which team it was. If you look in there, you'll notice there was only one. I've worked with them before. I've trained with them. I competed with them in Taiwan. What the hell? It's uh, Namur. Um, their team lead um, that went to China, uh, I've seen him before, met him a few times. But he, on one of the scenarios, was using a vehicle as an anchor. That's what we had to use for that particular scenario. He had to move the vehicle for a better angle, moved it a certain distance from the edge in order for the better deflection over that edge. And I'd seen it before with one of the other team leaders from Belgium. And now it's interesting, two different spots in the world, two similar scenarios, exact same outcome with those two team leaders. That deflection, that angle, like how far to move that anchor back in order to maximize your mechanical advantage but minimize your deflection over that edge where you needed to be, it's a trained skill. That's the only way I can view that. There's no other way that two team leaders are going to come up with the exact same answer to the same question. It's a trained skill. And it makes me think about the team leaders that we operate with here and trying to bring that standard of training up. And a lot of that's experience, but it's also just that knowledge of how your ropes are going to react, how your rigging is going to react to the different anchorages and the forces that are applied. And there's some real value, I think, in taking away some of that knowledge and training and incorporating it into our training here, both in the fire service and privately through things like Ronin, 
so that those TLs that come out of these programs, both in the public and private sector, have more knowledge with that rigging. You know, you think about what should a team lead course have? I mean, just add on team lead stuff, do we add on supervisory stuff? Yes, we do all that, but it's also that knowledge of what and how to rig in order to maximize your effectiveness and efficiency. And that was very cool to see there. So this brings me back now into um, Taiwan. Now, Taiwan is considered part of China by China. Uh, Taiwanese may think a little bit differently. I'm not trying to get into some political thing here, but I just want to say that there is a difference between competing in China, which we did at Lifeline, and competing in Taiwan, which we did at Chow. This was, I believe, the fifth year for Chow. Once again, Jay Shen and Eras, his rope access company in Taiwan, started this. And it is a very successful event. 27 teams, I believe. A few foreign teams, a couple out of Europe. He had Japan, Korea, Taiwan, mainland China. Uh, I think Macau was there, Hong Kong. So a lot of Asian countries... But it's good to see that and see different rigging techniques and different ideas. A lot of these teams there are military or former military that are now fire. A lot of their fire service was military and is now now branched out into what we would consider more like a fire authority or a fire bureau. But they're not military theoretically anymore. But it's interesting to see some of those skills and drills that they bring to the table. Generally, I find that the Asian competitors' personal skills are very good. The team that climbed in China, for instance, doing that ascent in seven, just over seven minutes. I want to say it was like 7.32 or something. Crazy fast. Like just those personal skills rock. They do have a little bit more of a challenge putting it together on a team scale sometimes. That being said, um, the team that won this year was from the host city, Kaohsiung, in southern Taiwan. I probably slaughtered that. I'm sorry. And so they're definitely starting to put those two things together. And they're going to be a force to be reckoned with as they manage to do that more and more. And that's one of these benefits of these rope rescue competitions is you get these teams coming together from around the world, sharing ideas, and naturally then bringing up, even by osmosis, the standard for everybody. Now in Taiwan, like China, and it's Jay Shen helped with both or runs one and helped with the other, the 30-60-90 rule applied as well. In Taiwan, the controller was not judged like they were in China, but they did compete on the first day. Now there was much more of a rope access um, element to Taiwan than I have seen in other events. And that's fine. Um, There was a good mix of both rope access and rope rescue. Now, the rope access, day one. The first climb, it was a 50 meter climb into a 40 meter rebelay. There was a knot in the rebelay and you had to touch a point on the ground with your hand, but no other part of your body could touch the ground climb out of the 40-meter rebelay into a 20-meter rappel at the end of it. Um, I was controlling for the Belgians at this particular event and uh, 
did compete with them on that first day. I competed with them, obviously, the whole time, but was part of the team that climbed that first day. And this brings up an interesting point on Grimp Day. Now, there was some discussion about, you know, how you had to do this event. And staying on, you know, the four points of contact. Anybody that's done North American Rope Access, you're into a, a rather large replay here. And you know what? You've got your main and your safety on one side. you got a main and a safety on the other. You're basically doing like a large rope to rope almost. I don't have to explain this to anybody that knows Rope Access. And you've got four points, two on each side. Now, four points is not the norm for some European teams, especially more the French-speaking teams. It's, you know, three points for a lot of these types of events. Now, in the instructions, it was said four points. Now, this is the interesting part of Grimp Day and the communication. In order to get four points, you need five much like a horizontal aid. In order to stay on two, you need three. Because in order to move one, you've got to be attached to one. That's a different concept in some parts in Europe. They'll go down to three and then reattach to four. So when you say four points, you're speaking the same language, but you're not communicating. Because in one person's mind, four points is drop to three, put the fourth back on. In another person's mind, four points is go to five to move to stay on a minimum of four. Now, there was some interesting arguments about that. That did rack up some time. And some teams weren't successful because of that. But it brings up that point in Grimp Day again about just because you're speaking the same language doesn't mean you're actually communicating. And the more I see this, the more you look and realize how specific you have to be with that. Um, Back to uh, China, even when they were giving out some of the instruction in China, sitting next to the Namur team there, and he would look kind of confused sometimes, and I would explain it to him a bit in English, even though the Chinese were explaining it in English. But it's the different concept, just even the way it's said You know, he'd be like, I understand that coming from me, but having competed in Europe for so long, I knew how to break it down into what he knew. And so it's interesting as these events go around the world and for people that want to run these, this is the challenge that's out there. Just because you're speaking the same language doesn't mean you're communicating because people are coming from a different frame of reference and you need to understand that frame of reference and communicate based on that frame of reference. So yeah, Um, the nice thing though about Taiwan with Jay, he understands that not everybody there is rope access. That is, I mean, a climb and a rebelay. It's strictly a rope access event. That Thursday was scored separately and awarded a prize separately than the next two days, which was the rescue events. So he recognizes that, yeah, there's going to be some rope access people coming. They're going to be really good at this and we'll have a separate award for that. And I thought that was very positive. It's helping bring those two communities together and it's rewarding each community for what they do naturally the best. So yeah, that first day was at the National Stadium. The second day was out in the jungle. And maybe it was just a different time of the year, but I thought China was hot and humid and Taiwan was hot and humid. 
we go out in the jungle, and I guess that's why they call it the jungle, because, yeah, if it, it felt like it was 45 freaking degrees out there. Sun beating down on you all day. Hot, sweaty, stinky, sticky. Great conditions to do rope rescue in. The best part of it was when we were in the uh, stadium on day one, my wife happened to be there. And some of the organizers came up and said to her, oh, don't wear sandals and shorts tomorrow. And she's like, why not? And they're like, well, because of the spiders and snakes. <laughs> that pretty much set that one off. Now, she was a trooper. She came on out and took a look at it. And so day two was out in a bridge area in one of the national parks. Beautiful location. Just sitting there in the jungle just listening to the bugs and the animals and the sounds that come out of there. Once again, this is this travel the world to do rescue and just visit these phenomenal places. So Taiwan had a bunch of different things for the events out there. I mean, I can get into them in detail. Needless to say, very good events. But something happened that day that's come up in a few places. You might have seen it around Facebook a little bit there was an anchor failure. In reality, I think there's probably four anchor failures. Same anchor style though, small concrete block. I know of two that slid and two that actually rolled over. This goes back to this theme on communication though. They had said, do not use the top rings by themselves kind of on those anchors. It was spelled out. They were hoping the team leads would look at those anchors, put them together and either back tie them, maybe dead man one of them, bury one under the other, whatever the case may be. But the team leads a lot of the times didn't do that. Now the controllers didn't check the bottom anchors. The anchors were kind of out of their, out of their ballpark. They, that belonged to the control staff, the actual safety staff of the event, not the controllers. So we never questioned those as controllers. And like I say, a lot of the time, the team lead, which maybe should have questioned the anchor and say, hey, this is unstable. Maybe I need to fix this a little bit. Didn't. Most of the time, the anchors just slid. There was nothing catastrophic. There was one time, though, with the Japanese, the anchor flipped right over. They were on a sloping high line, which caused the package to head into the ground. It wasn't a catastrophic failure. It probably caused someone to get a little bit of dirt in their pants. Uh, from internally, not externally. I'm sure it wasn't a fun ride, but nobody was hurt. Nothing was truly damaged, but it did come back to this point. So they would give the instructions in Chinese, which would then be translated to English, which would then be translated to things like Japanese or German or French, um, Korean, what other languages were spoke there. You get the idea. So you're talking four times removed almost now from the front. It's, you know, you ever play that game where you pass the message around the circle and when it comes back to you, it's a different message? That's all in English or whatever language you happen to be growing up in when you play that game in elementary school. This is now moving through four separate languages at times, at least three, sometimes four separate languages to get translated. Also, sometimes these translators are not technically proficient with the terms that are used in rescue. So now, when it's translated across, 
you're missing concepts. Back to that one where I was talking about, you know, the three points, four points. We're speaking the same language, but we're not understanding each other because we're not coming from the same background or the frame is different. Now you're coming from a different frame of reference and you're not even speaking the same language. So I think that combination of this is an event, do I change the anchors? Am I allowed to change the anchors to the language confusion? did cause some confusion here. Thank goodness there was no serious problem that arose from it, but I like where the organizers are going with it. They're trying to get you to think about some other things with the rigging. I think there is a potential for that in the future, and I hope that this part of it doesn't scare off people for the future of having people have to make anchors. That's one of those things. Anchors at a lot of these events have always been a given, and they've always been, you know, whether I thought they were bomber or not, somebody has declared that they're good enough for that event. We can go on a big tangent here about anchors and say, what is bomb-proof and what is not bomb-proof, what is subjective, what is not subjective. I'll save it for another podcast. But needless to say, that is something that definitely has to come in. So that brings up last couple of points here. Why do the competitions? I mean, they're live patients that we have in here. Is live patient good? We just talked a bit about an anchor failure. Is the risk that we're taking at these events worth the outcome? I'm going to come straight up and say yes. For us, for our team sitting where we are presently in our time scope, it is. We have learned so much from doing these events. There's no other way to put it. We have come away as better riggers. We have come away as more experienced members. We, I can't remember the fellow's name, but he talks about that high risk, low frequency event. That is rope rescue. Great video. If you haven't seen it, just Google it. I want to say it's Gordon somewhere or another, but we don't do it a lot. So how do we make it safer at the end of the day. We've got to do it more. We have to have that experience. How do you get that experience? You put live people in a basket and you dangle them over the edge and you or on rope and you dangle them over the edge and you go and you rescue them. End of discussion. It's the only way to get true 100% experience in what we're doing is to do it. To add in the pressure of time, to add in the pressure of humiliation because of your peers, to add into the pressure of all of those things, make this what it is. It, it gives you that experience to do this. I look at rescues or things that we have to do in the public sector. I'm still working fire. We had to do a little belay to belay a dude off the top of um, container ship this summer. We had uh, a Unrelated MVI taking out a power source to the docks. Um, shut down the cranes. Dude was up there for a few hours, 30 degree day. Getting a bit dehydrated. Couldn't get down just because he's up on all these um, sea containers. Uh, if you ever see these ships that run these sea containers, you'll know what I'm talking about. Had to get up there. Had to belay people on. Set up a little bit of a tension line across the sea container. Set up some ladders. Belay this guy down. Walk him off. No big deal. Having that plan in my head 
I've worked off sea containers. I've played this game before. I've done these things before. As the officer going in on that, definitely puts me at ease. That experience and that background and that confidence comes from traveling around the world and doing these grim competitions or these lifelines or chows, you know, these rope rescue competitions. So I really do think that it is for the better and it helps bring up the level of everybody's game. I learn things from other teams. Other teams learn things from me. And generally, the world becomes safer in the rope rescue disciplines from doing this. So where do we go from here? There is a Grimp Day now coming to North America. That's been released. Everybody knows about it. I was thrilled to see the response, the amount of teams that came forward wanting to compete in this. I think a lot of people were overwhelmed by that response, by the interest in this. And the best part is Las Vegas Fire reached out to me and said, hey, you know, we got some questions. We'd love to chat with you. If that's okay, if you're willing to talk about this. Of course we're willing to talk about this. Grimp Day is not about winning and losing. Um, that's tough for me to say. I mean, I'm one of those guys. If you can't win, don't play. Very difficult childhood with me, yes. Um, but Grimp is not about winning or losing. It is about learning. It is about sharing. It is about gaining experience and knowledge and skills. And of course I want these people to call me. Of course I want to speak with them. Of course we want to learn things from them as much as they want to learn things from us because we will all learn things from each other. And this competition under that stress, under the time limits, is the best way for that learning to occur. So with that said, that knocks out Grim version two. Appreciate you listening. Once again, uh, thanks for tuning in. And one last thing, it is the 11th of November today. For all those that have served in their country's armed forces, no matter where that have been, thank you very much. For all of our mates that didn't come home, till Valhalla.